Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. It is the 22nd of November, 2021. It is time, everybody, for Morning Combat. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. I am one half of your hosting duo. You might know me from CBS Sports and Showtime. I am coming to you live from the capital, Los Estados Unidos, right here in Washington, D.C. And you'll notice Brian has either lost weight or dyed his hair again, <laughs> or maybe it's actually not Brian. Say hello to our guest host for today. He is the man behind basically everything you really see on the video side and probably a whole lot more for the Mac life. It's Oscar Willis. What's up, Oscar? How are you? Um, I'm very well, man. Thank you very much for having me. I was a bit surprised to get the call, but I understand you needed to swap one degenerate for another. And so here I am, slot in as a nice, simple swap. Well, after some of your revelations in your podcast with uh, Dan Hooker about um, little people, I thought, well, he's actually quite perfect for the show, is he not? So um, how would you describe your work over the Mac Life? Tell the folks what you do over there. Man, uh, like you said, if you see it on the YouTube, it's probably me. I would handle most of the social media stuff as well. And I'm the guy who asks Dana White annoying questions at the post-white press conference, which really is the best part of the job, just slowly but surely turning him redder and redder. Now, you have been to the Apex a million times, right? Like, you were at the Apex for Saturday's Tate and Vieira fight. Uh, do you like the fights at the Apex? Uh, at this point, it's become so routine, and I think you'll probably... Uh, agree with this where when you're covering events you're traveling to different cities uh it can feel like different every week when it's at the apex every week it's slowly be surely becoming a bit like an office job i feel like i should just leave my stuff there and, and uh just go back every day and set up um i do like it but i will say when it's every saturday and you get a card that perhaps doesn't have as many exciting fights as others uh you can slowly but surely want to kill yourself in there for sure it's, it, it can get pretty boring yeah, the card this weekend, not super money. But luckily, there's actually a little bit to talk about. Plus, there was stuff, uh, some stuff on the boxing side. And you live in Las Vegas, so uh, that will be helpful for our analysis as well. All right, first things first, give a follow uh, or subscribe, rather, I should say, to Morning Combat YouTube channel or any other places there. You can see we got Oscar Willis's tw uh, Twitter and Instagram. It's the same everywhere like it is for Morning Combat. Brian and I are stupid, and we keep changing our names between... Uh, I should say among the outlets, but uh, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a subscribe on YouTube, do all that fun stuff there. Uh, merch, morningcombat.store if you want it. Drug Rugs, I think, are going to be out soon, if not already. 
And uh, we have other popular items for you to peruse there, like including this, my uh, face on my shirt. You can see there the Dead Luke tee, the classic comfy MKT, and the Orchids of Combat tee, which of course is the favorite of Oscar. He loves the Orchids of Combat tee. Just live uh, for Morning it. Combat. Yeah. <laughs> Morningcombat.store. We have the place for that. If you want Showtime, because by the way, UFC doesn't come back till December 4th, but Showtime will have boxing this weekend. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the train rolls on. So... Go to Showtime. Get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. But if you want to watch some boxing this weekend with, by the way, cool boy Steph, it's going to be a great, great fight. Uh, go to Showtime.com. 30-day free trial there. Reminder, help us scam the algorithm for Apple and leave us a phony but nice review with the five stars. That way we can be much higher up in uh, searches and rankings than we deserve to be. And then last but certainly not least, give us an email. Luke, T What am I saying, actually? It's uh, morningcombat at gmail.com. For that'll be Wednesday's fan subs and then Friday's dead wrong. Now, as a bit of a programming note, Friday we're going to have a mailbag show, so we won't get to dead wrongs this week, but we still want them because Brian is going to be due for about three weeks of those by the time he comes back, and I can't wait for the avalanche of L's to rain down upon him. But there you go, just the same. All right, Oscar, are you ready? Yes, I am. All right, there he is. Well, very, very terse, but ready to go. All right. Topic number one, we start with boxing if we can. Terrence Crawford defeats Sean Porter on Saturday, and he becomes the first man to stop him. TKOs him along the way. Eventually, Sean Porter would retire. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Oscar, you live in Las Vegas. You watch the fight. I will go to you first on this. A, what grade would you give the performance of Terrence Crawford? And then B, did he make his case for being the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter in the sport by virtue of the win? I think it's an incredible performance, to be honest. When you get to be a level like Crawford or with Canelo and stuff, he kind of has this aura of invincibility. And we only, the only time we can really appreciate their greatness is when they're tested. On Saturday night, he, he actually was in a, a real fight. It was a good dog fight. And I think slowly but surely we saw Porter start to... Um, we saw it start to go in Crawford's favor because that's the difference between a top-tier fighter and an elite fighter. So I thought his, uh, his performance was incredible. I thought he... I'm not going to give it an A because he did get clipped a few times, but he did comb through that adversity. So I'll give him a solid B+, because I'm a generous guy, and it's early morning, and I'm feeling fresh for the day. Um, yeah, and, and it just... It was a great fight in terms of... Remind me of your second question just there. Yeah, just what, did you was that the kind of performance for you that was like okay, he's the best fighter in the sport. The best fighter in the sport? No, I still think Canelo holds that throne just because of the way he's going through the weights. Um, and unfortunately, like combat sports is an entertainment show. It is the way it is. So you kind of have to have a little bit of an X factor outside the ring to really start getting those accolades. That's unfair, but I, I just deal with it. Um, so I don't think he's the pound for pound best in that division. I would say he's the guy who's on top. All right, here's the way I would look at this. I'm going to say for the grade, I'm going to give him an A-. Uh, I'm with you. He did get hit enough where I couldn't give it an A+, but I don't want to go down to a B, Oscar, and I'll tell you why, or even B+. Not that A- and B- are all that far apart, but the reason why is because in the end, yes, the father stopped the fight, and we'll talk about that for just a second, but the reason why I'm going to give him an A- is because... One, while he did get hit somewhat, and that counts against the perfect performance, he ultimately got the stoppage. And even if his father didn't save him, 
that was going in the wrong direction really fast in round 10. In fact, I was texting with Brian this morning because he hasn't seen the fight yet. He knows the results, but he hasn't seen the fight. And he was like, would you give Porter a strong account? Dude, in the first six rounds, I gave Porter four of them. I had it four to two heading into the seventh. But to me, that was where it turned. Now, I think seven, eight, yeah, I think six, seven, and eight. There's a lot of close rounds, but definitely seven and eight, six, seven, and eight. Probably could have gone either way. I'm telling you my scorecard. I had Porter four rounds to two through six. And then around seven, eight, I had it. You could probably go either way if you wanted to. But I had him all for Crawford. By round nine, dude, he was operating. Round nine was clearly, no doubt about it, Crawford's round. If you want to say some of the other ones were a bit of a toss-up. And then round 10, of course, he gets the stoppage. Drops him twice. And that was fairly early in the round. I think a minute and some change had passed. He probably was going to put him away in that round, if not... The next one, again, we don't know that for sure, but it seemed that likely. So for those reasons, his ability to your mind, I think you kind of alluded to it, his adapting over the course of the fight, especially through the second half of it, was so masterful. I don't want to say that that's not an A-level performance, even if I grant there's some other factors here. But the second part, I think, is the more interesting question. Was he top pound for pound? See, here's the thing. If you want to argue that a guy like Bud Crawford is the most talented boxer in the sport, we can certainly debate that. But if we're going to talk about pound for pound, Oscar, and this is true in MMA, it's true in boxing, it's what's on the resume. And you cannot blame Bud Crawford entirely for the you know Amir Khan fights that he had that were big names or interesting challenges, but not really up to the level of what like dude like what Canelo was doing in terms of the names on the resume as he plods yeah. through the level of achievement, Oscar. It's just not what Bud has. But if you wanted to argue separately, he's a more talented boxer. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but I think it is a separate question, and I think you could reasonably come up with Bud as your number one on that level. I can understand that, and I think technically you're probably you're probably right. I think he is. There are certain guys who get into a groove. I think Kamara Usman in MMA is kind of one of those guys at the moment, where there just seems to be like an air of inevitability about their fights. You know, they're going to go in there. Now, on Saturday, Porter came at him, which I think you have to do against those sort of guys. Don't let these guys set their rhythm, set their tone, make it their fight from the off. I think you have to be very aggressive very early, and I think Porter did that with some success. But there's just an air about them, and the air comes from their technical ability, right? His ability to find the counter uppercut in such a tight space where Porter was closing the distance so quickly, and he was able to fire off those counter shots um, with with accuracy, I thought it was tremendous. He he really is, he's operating at a, a fantastic level right now, and to your point around the resume, that's unfortunately the sport of boxing. A lot of these guys could have better resumes if it wasn't for the just air of politics around every single move they make right so a lot of the times that might fall on the fighter sometimes fighters get a bit picky and choosy with who and when they fight old floyd famous for it but um i think there's some shame um some blame to be shared perhaps with crawford and his promoters but yeah it's not entirely his fault right that there are fights that he could have that would put him on a higher regard amongst fans and he just hasn't had those yet let me ask you, which American boxers, I know you've been living in the States for some time now, but Bob Aaron made a claim. We'll talk about what might be next for either guy. Bob was saying, yes, I would love for Crawford to come back because he could go back to 140 and we could put him versus Josh Taylor on in the UK. He said, sell 70,000 seats, do big pay-per-view over there. Now, I believe that if they did put a fight there with those two, it would do well at the box office. 70,000, I don't know, but let's say you know, a, a, a handsome uh, gate receipt. 
And I do believe it would do well on pay-per-view there in the UK as well. But he said something that was interesting. He goes, Terrence is quite popular in the UK as well. Is that true? Yeah, in fact, the UK, uh, I would argue that as a sport, and this is probably where I'm going to get loads of slack for this, but I would argue as a sport, boxing is sort of more popular than it is over in America. You know, there's so many other sports in America that boxing gets diluted. And the, the, the percentage of hardcores amongst the general fan base is lesser than I think in the UK. I think people like Crawford and Canelo would, would be recognized more going down the street than they would here. Canelo, maybe not. But certainly, until recently, Deontay Wilder would have been the same. Deontay Wilder could have walked down a street in America and likely not been recognized before this Fury fight, but he would have been recognized in, in the UK. Um, there is something to that. What Bob wants, I don't know. I suspect old Bob has seen AJ walking out in front of that many people and thought to himself, that's a lovely gate receipt right there. I don't think Crawford's selling out those sort of stadiums. I think you have to be very Fury and Joshua are essentially those two people who can do that. Um, and Bob has a weird sort of relationship with the UK where I think he he seems to view it as some sort of untapped market at all times. And he's always touting that he can bring this guy over because he knows the mm. Brits kind of get out to back their own and he can sell tickets. For example, I felt for a long time the reason why, and this was probably not the case, but I had my conspiracy hat on and thought the reason why Fury Wilder 3 was maybe postponed was because they couldn't get any Brits through the door because of the travel ban. And maybe that's why they pushed it back. I was probably wrong. I'd probably been smoking too much of what Joe Rogan smokes. Who knows? But um, yeah, I'm always a bit curious of what Bob's angle is but certainly i think crawford has a level of fan base over there that he might not do here Hmm, interesting okay getting back to the fight itself i like what you said about uh porter i thought you know we, we everything's going to get lost here because now we're going to transition in just a moment to something else but porter i thought made a really strong account of himself again i thought he won the first four of the two rounds i love that he had that stance that was lowered at first and then he would switch and have the bouncy kind of stance and blitzing sort of thing he gave the strongest account of himself that i thought he could have at least of the first half of the fight but then bud crawford switching the southpaw shutting down the jab and then welcoming the blitz to a degree by creating distance and then framing off of him that's ultimately how he closed the show how impressed were you this time with with porter i thought he was overmatched by the time the 10th round came along but you know someone if someone asked you what could he given his skill set what could he have done differently i'm not sure the answer is anything yeah and i, I know we're going to get to his father in a, a little bit I thought Porter gave it a fantastic account of himself. He lost to Crawford. Okay, you lost to literally one of the best in the sport. There's no shame in that. And in fact, just being able to give him a dogged performance, and like you said, he came very aggressively. Now Crawford was able to make adjustments. Let's note, they clashed heads a number of, of times. That could have affected them. It mm. didn't seem to too much. But there was, it was a gritty fight. And from Porter's account, I felt that was probably... You know, we often say in this sport, when these guys fight people way above their level, like, oh, they've got to turn this one into a fight. You know, they've got to turn this one into a brawl, get the, get the boxing out of it and turn it into a fight. That's what he did. He did what was asked of him by what people usually say. And I thought he gave a great account of himself. He should be very proud. And that's why, and again, we're going to get into this. I think the retirement tour maybe came from emotional place, not an actual logical one. All right. So he did, in fact, say at the post-fight press conference, Sean Porter did, that this was his last one. Now, there's a couple of things here. Let's back up a step. Let's go talk about the stoppage because that probably has something to do, perhaps, with the way it all kind of ended. His dad just hangs him out to fucking dry on the pay-per-view broadcast and says, you know, uh, I, he didn't prepare adequately and I know what I saw and whatnot. Now, there's two competing schools here, uh, Oscar. One school. His dad has been with him since the amateurs. He knows him better than anyone 
often when we're worried about dads in corners, it's because they're doing the opposite of what he did here, which is just letting the shit go. He did. He <laughs> yeah. actually called it quite early. And so, you know, who are we to say that we know better than his father, who has been with him for such a long time? He may have seen something, you know, especially when he was pounding his fist on the yeah, mat I that was after he up. got knocked down the second time, right? He was losing his bearing there a little bit. On the other hand, it's like, dude, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe it was justified. Maybe you know better. But, dude, why are you hanging your son out to fucking dry on the pay-per-view yeah. broadcast? Seemed a little weird. Yeah, I completely agree. I actually thought he was completely out of line. Um, he's like, oh, he didn't prepare enough. Well, he did a... He did all right, you know. He got to late in the fight and he gave him a good go. I don't know what the fuck you were expecting to see. I, I did think the um, the pounding on the canvas was a little bit weird. I wondered if maybe he had seen something in that that was concerning him because that you don't usually see boxers do that, you know, just complete frustration. So at first I thought the stoppage was a little early because I watched the UFC and we don't believe in stopping fights until they're dead. But I thought that um, <laughs> I thought it was a little bit early. But then after a while you realise, like, actually, no, that's probably a good corner that's what we actually want to see someone because he was going to get knocked out right eventually so why let him take more punishment get him out of there early but then to you know when chris weidman lost and his dad's like this is still my boy it's like his dad was trying to give him up for adoption on live live tv it's insane he just didn't want him there it's i don't understand it i understand that he's been with him for ages and so he might know better than us but i don't i don't know what he was expecting to see and if he didn't prepare well i i, I don't know how much more he could prepare to get a better account of himself you know i don't think him doing a couple more miles in the morning was going to make the difference in that fight so again maybe the emotions were running high maybe his father knew that this was such a big fight for him and so to see him lose was just like almost too much frustration to bear but you know you don't have to you know spank okay the kid but on TV. as for the call itself i mean i was like but imagine afterwards that he had not said that that he had said you know i know much my, uh, my son and this was not his night and blah 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 but imagine he hadn't hung him out to drive what about the call itself do you have an issue with the call? No, no, I think it was fair. I mean, at first I was a little bit surprised. I wasn't frustrated or annoyed by it. I was just surprised because we don't usually see people step in that early. But I mean, at that point of the fight, the momentum was very clearly slipping into one direction, right? And Crawford being what he is, when he smells the finish, he's one of those guys that he's going to hunt you down and continue to land. And the more hurt Porter gets, the more easy it is for Crawford to find those shots, right? So I think it was a fair stoppage. It was a little bit sort of weird. It was like he didn't actually throw the towel in. He just kind of stood. It, it was a little bit strange, and it kind of took me a few seconds to sort of understand what had happened. Um, Porter certainly looked like he could continue. You know, he looks pretty lucid, I, but I think it was a fair stoppage. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I would look at it is, you know, have we seen fights go longer? I mean, yeah, we've seen a lot yeah. of fights go longer when guys get that hurt. At the same at the same time, the way I scored it, again, I, first four, first half of the fight was Porter's as far as I'm concerned. Second half was all Crawford. I had him 7, 8, 9. 9 again, un, un, utterly undeniable it was his round. And then round 10, he gets the two knockdowns. And the second knockdown came pretty quickly. And again, it came pretty early in the fight. Like, was it a little bit early? Maybe a little bit early. But here's the thing, man. You know this. You, you alluded to it. I mean, how many times in MMA have we seen a corner... Yeah just let their guy go out there and take a fucking super unnecessary beating. Then they lose, and you're like, right, here we are. Maybe this was on the early side, but I got to tell you, as a general orientation for me, if we're on the side of 
preserving someone's humanity and their ability. By the way, Sean already has a career as a broadcaster. He's doing that now. You see him on PBC on Fox. You see him doing all kinds of stuff. He, he worked with Brian Campbell on NBC Sports. Maybe he wanted to preserve his brain health. And like, if you're going to err on the side of caution, and, and then maybe he knew also it was his last fight, I guess I don't have an issue with it. My, my, I, in the end, I just thought it could have been handled a little bit more delicately. It also depends, right? If, let's say, the fight was still razor close at that point, and he threw in the towel after two knockdowns, well, then you're denying your fighter the chance to get back in there and, you know, show some grit and heart. But the fight was starting to slip away from him. So when it's like that, when Chael always says, I think, you know, you don't, you don't pull them out when they don't have a chance to win or something like that. Whatever Chael says, I donate says a lot. But, um, you know, you basically pull them out when they don't have a route to victory anymore. And I felt at that point, it's fair to assume he probably did not have a route to win at that, that fight anymore. It should have been handled better. Um, as you said earlier, you know, if he had just thrown the towel in and not, you know, decided to abandon his child after the fight, no one would have said anything. It would have just been like, yeah, okay. Because we saw with Wilder, right, in the second fight, the way that was handled from the fighter's perspective, I think everyone walked away from that being like, man, we should actually respect coaches who want to get involved and want to protect their guy more than we should respect the ones who sort of look at their watch as the brains are coming out of their ears on the canvas, you know? All right, fair enough. Well, I'll give you the final word on that topic. Let's talk about the second topic. So now we move forward with this. Sean Porter has retired. Again, I thought some people were saying it was a Hall of Fame career. I'm not so sure about that, but let's put that to the side. Let's talk about what might be next. Everything in the fight game is what happened and then what's next. Here's the what's next part. We are, at least in theory, much closer to a showdown between the top welterweights. That's 147 pounds in boxing between... Crawford and now Errol Spence, who, by the way, was in attendance of the fights, something he said he would never be for a Crawford fight. Uh, Oscar, I keep calling you, I'm, I'm getting ready to call you BC every time. I got to stop doing that. Well, that's Oscar, just insulting. <laughs> it really is. It's the worst. You could be high on meth and that would be insulting still. All right. And but here's he the issue. Is. That was the, yeah, which he often is. That was the last fight on the contract for top rank with Bud Crawford. He is technically. A free agent. We know Errol Spence is with PBC. In your mind, Oscar, everyone wants to see it, but reasonably speaking, how close do you think we are? We are closer than ever because of what you just said. The fact he's no longer with uh, Top Rank is a massive deal, I think. You know, boxing has kind of, especially old Bob, they love to play the Manny Floyd game, right? Well, let's just leave it as long as possible. Let's string out as many fights as we can from both guys. And then eventually, when we've really run out of everything else, we'll do that fight. We'll still make a killing because people will still want to watch it. Uh, they love doing that. It's very annoying that they do that. Fury and Joshua has disappeared probably because they like to do that. Um, so I think now he's out of the way and there's room for negotiations. I mean, what a position Crawford's in, by the way, to be a free agent in this marketplace. It's a pretty good deal for him. I think he's potentially going to make... It's not even about the money. I can imagine it's not necessarily about the money for Crawford. I would probably like to sign with the guy who didn't publicly essentially shit on me and say, oh, I could build a house in Beverly Hills and stuff like that. Doesn't really speak to a great working relationship. Um, so I think we're closer than ever. I just have been burnt so many times by boxing that it's hard for me to say it's definitely happening next. I'm just going to have to wait and see. I can imagine they give yeah. Spence one first and then, you know, then he has to have a first one on his new contract and so on and so forth. So I'm not ready to say we're going to see it next, but I do believe we've taken a very necessary and important step to get there. I think that Bud Crawford should do, well, A, he should do what's best for him, and I think he will probably make a call to do that. I think he should play the Canelo game, personally. Like Canelo has reached a point in his career, he can sign one, 
two fight deals and he can bounce from promoter to uh whoever has you know this stable of fighters and that stable of fighters he has totally freed himself and he has the leverage to do it because everybody wants to be in the canelo business now i don't know if all those same kind of people want to be in the bud crawford business to the same degree but yeah dude virtually every promoter in this space is going to want to be in the bud crawford business if they can help it your dominant force there it's probably going to be PBC. They have had a lock on 147 in a way that no other promoter has. And in fact, part of the reason why Spence being with PBC and of course Crawford being with top rank, that fight didn't happen was you get it. Uh, sort of a, a sanctioning body demanding it or some other intervening factor. We were probably never going to get it as a consequence of that. Well, now that impediment is totally out of the way. He could go and sign with PBC and Al Heyman and everybody else. He could fight freaking Spence on Showtime for all we know or CBS or Fox or whatever. He would have tons of opportunity there, and not just Spence, but the other welterweights there. Now, I want to give a shout-out to two different people who I thought made great points about this already. First, Scott Christ over at Bad Left Hook, which is a great boxing website, he argued something that I think is unimpeachably true. Namely, there have always been times at 147 where you could have uh, Bud or Spence have a bigger fight, Right. I'll give you an example. It wasn't the fight that made the most sense, but it could make sense. It was decent, and the, the other guy had a big name. Spence, for example, was supposed to take on Pacquiao. Now, Spence got his eye messed up, and the fight fell through, and Ugas went in there, and we all know the story. But the point being was, you got around Spence versus Crawford by just giving Spence to Pacquiao because, hey, big name, big fight, big sales, whatever. Pacquiao is now gone. And if you just look at the rest of the division, Ugas has one title, but he he didn't get a like a blown up name from fighting Pacquiao. So at 147, this is the first time in history, and you add in the free agent component, it adds it to this exponentially. But just in terms of like the big names, each guy is the biggest name they could fight for each other. There's no bigger fight you can literally make. Now there's a couple of ways. You could get around it. Bob was saying, oh, go back to 140, 141. Go fight Josh Taylor in the UK. That would be big. Okay, but is Bud Crawford going to sign with top rank again? He was stone cold, no-selling Bob to his fucking face at the post-fight press conference, being like, if he couldn't secure me a fight with Spence when I was with him, what the fuck's he going to do when I'm without him? Number one. Number two, what are you going to do? You could go if you're, if you're uh, Crawford. He may have to go to 154, Oscar, and maybe fight a Charlo, and that's a big fight, but that's not going to be bigger than fighting Errol Spence. Dude, when has there ever been a time where the biggest fight for Crawford is Spence, the biggest fight for Spence is Crawford? Never. Now is that time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the, the only answer to Bob saying, oh, he could drop that, just fuck off, Bob. You don't get to talk about this anymore. <laughs> you, don't. You, you just shut up. I think uh, you're absolutely right. I, I think now also... Charlie fight is big, I'll, I'll grant you that. But what I think we're reaching the point now where if they don't fight, fans are going to call bullshit. You know, they're going to say, okay, you're, you're, you guys are starting to take a piss. You guys are never going to fight each other. I think the Manny factor being taken out is probably more massive than we can realize because he was, any name like that is just available to play silly buggers in negotiations. Oh, well, I don't need to fight you. I can fight this guy and make loads of money. And then that turns into an ego game and dick measuring contest, which boxing loves. And no one ever wins in those, you know, really, except for Floyd. But um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. I think this is the time. I, it just makes sense. I feel like that fights like the one on Saturday put a bit of momentum to the fight we want to see, right? We, we haven't just seen these like dull drubbings of this guy comes in, 
dominates and everyone goes home feeling a little bit robbed of their money. That was a great fight. Now's the time to capitalize on that and get it booked. Get it booked as soon as possible. Let's not have a really prolonged year of negotiations in which everyone just co- sort of sees the headline for the sixth time and goes, oh, God, here we go. Capitalize on what you've achieved and make the fight as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, I saw some people being like, okay, here's what, ha- here's what should happen. Crawford, he would sign with PBC, which would be great. Let's have Crawford fight Ugas first, so then he would have two titles. I think Spence would have the other two titles and then you would get this undisputed meeting, which I grant, <laughs> I don't like. But just knowing the way boxing works, I feel might be inevitable. But you could, at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, you could not credibly make the argument that Crawford versus Ugas is in any way bigger than Crawford versus Spence. What you could argue is that Crawford versus Ugas, assuming Crawford wins, makes... Crawford versus Spence, an already big fight, truly the biggest it could be. Yeah, I gotta it, say, I that, still don't give a fuck. I don't. I have no interest in Crawford versus Ugas right now. No, well, I mean, let's be honest. Ugas could drive a lot of people to the arena in an Uber, and they wouldn't realize he was the guy fighting. Um, that's really mean, but that's just his popularity is not where it could be in terms of Spence and Crawford. I will say that fighting for the so both guys having two titles to meet up for an undisputed fight, in theory, sounds. To me, sounds great. Okay, all the all, everything's on the line. Perfect, undisputed champion. I love it. What will happen is both guys will hold two titles and then think, well, I'm not fucking risking these two for him. And then they'll fight mandatories, and then the whole thing will just be drawn out even longer. Capitalize now. <laughs> win the third belt if you want later on. Fair enough. Last thing on this, I mentioned I had two people I wanted to shout out. One was Scott Chris, the bad left hook. The other one would be Chris Mannix. I thought made a good point. We kind of talked about it earlier. Just sort of briefly, I wanted to add. If you add in uh, what Canelo is doing, right, just sort of picking his spots where he can because he has the leverage to do that, Bud is 34. If, like, A, you mentioned, I think quite rightly, there's momentum behind this. Plus, he's 34. Plus, he's a free agent. And then you look at Miguel Cotto, as Chris Mannix had pointed out. Miguel Cotto did the same thing at at a senior stage in his career. He just began to pick and choose as a free agent where he wanted to go. It's a great model for the right fighter at the right time. Bud Crawford either has a claim to or being near the best pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. He just beat his toughest test to date, and he's a free agent. If you're going to pull that trigger, I think now's the time. All right, before our audience, by the way, commits mutiny, let's transition over to <laughs> MMA if we can. Point number three, B- or, uh, Oscar. I'm going to call you BC anyway because fuck you. Bastard. All right. <laughs> Ketlin Vieira defeats Misha Tate in the main event of UFC Vegas 43. Our co-host was there at the Apex. All right, Oscar, the question is as follows. Similar kind of thing. First, how impressive was Ketlin Vieira? How would you rate her performance overall, even though she got the clear win? And then secondly, is she the rightful challenger to the winner of Nunes versus Pena? Well, I'll say this about her performance. I felt that while Misha was always in the fight, and while you could maybe look at that fight and score the rounds in a certain way to give Misha some, I felt it seemed like Vieira's fight pretty much throughout. You know, there were moments for Misha, but Vieira, I felt, won that fight pretty dominantly, really. She never looked like she even had to get into third gear. My issue with the performance is that she never went into third gear. You know, Daniel Cormier came under fire for criticizing her on the commentary, but I actually very much agreed with him during that. I felt that she just, it almost seemed like she was a bit overawed by Misha. You know, maybe just that this is someone she's looked up to for a long time. She mentioned that after the fight that she was nervous about it. And I could 
in one of those moments, you could see that sort of playing out, right? She could land punches. Misha's tape was a bloody mess by the end of it. And she just never really seemed to hunt her down and go for it. Personally, I was at the Apex on Saturday and I wanted to go out and get a drink. And her dragging this fight into the fifth round is really upsetting to me because I had other things to do. But, you know, I can't really hold that bias against her. I just will say I think the performance was good. A little bit... It wasn't the sort of performance like Izzy versus Brunson where you go, wow, look at this person. Like, what a force they're going to be. I think a fight yeah. like that doesn't necessarily... That's not a fight I think title shot. You know, that's not a performance I think gets a title shot. Now, the depth of that division means maybe it could be, right? It depends on timing. It depends on the winner of Amanda Pena, but let's say that's Amanda. Uh, it depends how often she wants to fight, what she's feeling that month. So she could sort of get pushed to a title shot. It just wasn't the one for me that makes me want to see it next, you know? All right. In terms of the performance, like, let me ask this question because this is always the existential one. I'm going to respond to something you said. I'm not even saying you're wrong that she didn't go to third gear. She kind of was in first, second, you know. And that was really all about it was, and it was enough to get the win, which kind of says not great things necessarily about Misha Tate, which we'll talk about in just a second. But for Ketlin Vieira, here's the argument. If she's winning in first and second gear, why does she need third gear? Especially if by the time you escalate the gears, you escalate the risk. I would argue that, as we mentioned before, uh, combat sports is unfortunately, like it or not, an entertainment-based sport. So... Why does she need to go into third gear? Well, she doesn't need to if she wants to win. She might need to if she wants to get a title shot. That's the difference, right? She can win and sort of get through the fight and, and not put herself at risk. The smart thing to do if this is a sport-based system on meritocracy. If you want a title shot, maybe you need a little bit of a wow factor. Was she really in contention? I was thinking about this too. Was she really in contention for a title shot? I mean, Kunitskaya is ahead of her. And Kunitskaya already beat her, granted somewhat controversially, but still beat her. And then you have uh, Aldana ahead of her as well. I think Aldana beat her as well. It's like yeah. beating Tate was good for beating a name. There's simply no denying. But I'm not sure what it got her. Like Even, even if she had finished Tate, do you, let's say this. Let's say she had finished Tate inside the third, right? Like Knocked her down, polished her off, boom. Would she still leapfrog the people in front of her who have wins over her? I guess that's where I'm. I, I'm a little bit skeptical. I think I, to be, I, before people said after the fact, like, okay, does she get the title shot now? I'd actually not even thought about the winner of this fight going for a title. Misha, maybe. And let's be honest, if the UFC wanted to sell more pay per views, Misha versus Amanda too probably still does more than Vieira Nunes too, just because of the name value, right? So you're right in saying that. Well, she beat a great name, and that's a great name to have on her resume, but. For those fights where you fight a name and you want to sort of take some of that shine with you, you kind of have to do a little bit more. We saw with Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz. I think Leon's the only guy in the last like five years, that, granted there haven't been many, who could fight Nate and not come out with a bit of rub because of what happened in the fifth round. You kind of have to really stamp your moment on those fights, and she just didn't. Um, so I don't think she should leapfrog the other two. Aldana knocks her out. And actually, I wonder if her more conservative style has come from that knockout where she thinks, like, oh, God, I don't want to get put to sleep again. Maybe that's part of it. But, yeah, I just don't, you know, it would, it, it would be one of those fights, no disrespect to Megan Anderson, but when she got booked against Amanda, I think most people sort of had an idea of how that fight would go, and then it kind of went that way, right? I feel if we do that with Vieira, it's going to be similar. But I just think people are going to kind of collectively shrug at it. 
Interesting. I, I, here's my read on this. I think you're right about the Aldana fight, right? Because it wasn't like before that she didn't have decisions. She had many of them, including some splits. But she had the arm triangle on Sarah McMahon. And obviously, earlier in her career, she had a series of stoppages as well. Since that loss to Aldana, it's been nothing but decisions. And it's been up and down. She decisioned Eubanks. She lost one to Kunitskaya, which I thought was pretty close, but still she lost. And then she had this one, which was not very close. But in the end, um, you know, there wasn't like a huge gap between them either. That might have informed her judgment. I also feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is the first time she's ever been in a main event. And I, so I, I tend to think that like... She was playing a game of, I don't want to ruin everything I've gotten to get to this point. And so, you know, the argument to me, like, was she somewhat conservative, I think is true. But for me, I'm not nearly as harsh on her about it as the commentary or perhaps some other folks. Just because I feel like, even if you got this win, now granted, I, I'm with you. If she had gotten some kind of dramatic win, hard to know exactly what would have happened. Maybe she could have rocketed to the top. It's certainly possible, right? But even with a win, I still feel like she knows and the UFC knows it's not going to be enough to get it done, especially with Aldano having the win and being ahead of her. They want to develop that Mexican market, if at all possible. Aldana's been a staple of that for some time. They probably would have gone in another direction. So she, this was a this was an imp super important win, but not the not the one where she's on the precipice of something truly special. And so for those reasons. I don't, I don't hate the calculus. Like, for example, I hated the calculus that St. Pierre made in his fight with Dan Hardy when he would constantly get the takedown. He went for a couple of very, very deep submissions, but he was acting like, at that time, Hardy's guard threat was so enormous, he could only keep him chest to chest and, and you know, ha had difficulty really raining down ground and pound. To me, that was not a reasonable call in terms of assessing risk. But also, he was like, you know, burned out at that point, and Dan Hardy was obviously a very, very tough challenge. What, I, what I'm saying is, as long as they're careful relative to what they're up against, I don't mind it. It's when there's they're careful and the situation doesn't necessarily call for it. In this case, first time main event, former champion, you're coming off of a loss. I don't know, man. Maybe being conservative is not the worst call in the world. It's fair to say, and there is an argument, and I'm, I'm more open to hearing it after what you just said, but I, I do think that, okay, it's a former champion. It's a former champion who has retired for a while until very recently, you know? If you're going to fight a former champion in a main event, that's a pretty nice position to get put in, especially since, you know, I wouldn't say you have a lot of name value amongst the fans. That's a pretty, pretty big opportunity for yourself. So, okay, yes, it's risk versus reward, but I would argue that the risk she was facing in that fight was outweighed by the reward she could have got if she'd have got the knockout. And as well, you mentioned about Aldana and the Mexican um, territory they want to build. I also think, knowing Dana White, they are going to want to try and do an international event soon, just as some sort of like flagpole, like, oh, look, we got to go and do an international event. I told you, motherfuckers. Rah, rah, rah. And I feel like time, I don't know about the situation with COVID, but timing is everything. I reckon they would like to see, maybe just to, to feel the waters about if they could even go to Brazil maybe sometime later next year. If they did, Brazil versus Brazil in the main event, I think that's an opportunity right there that could have happened if she'd got a finish. Now, I don't think so. Let me ask a serious question, because for folks who may not know, how many times have you been to Fight Island? Uh, every time. Every time. Every time. Jesus, that is... That is, I'm hard... I'm Five sorry weeks. Uh, Five weeks in a hotel room, baby. Jesus. Um, you're single, right? You must be. Yeah, <laughs> slinging dick like a champion. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. Serious question. With all, and, and people can like the rules, they can hate the rules, but they are what they are. 
can the UFC do an international event with the with all the vaccination requirements outside of Fight Island? Seriously, uh, I think they can. I think they'll try and do London. I think they will. London. Do okay. Yeah, because yeah. I think. I, I, again, there's so much COVID news these days. It's kind of like just just flies past my face. I don't even know what's the current news. But I believe that in England they were looking at maybe instead of it being you can be vaccinated and then your quarantine retirement's unless. But if you're not vaccinated, as long as you show like multiple negative tests, I think you can still go in. So I think they could try okay. and do London, especially if they have like a roster that they can fill out that card internationally. Totally. Right? So I think they can. I think they can. It depends. I think like Canada just made it. You have to be vaccinated. So I think you're more likely to pull off an international event in England right now than you are in Canada. Are the rules within, I, I realize that UK is no longer in the EU, but still, is it easier? <laughs> let me ask you this. Is it easier to get to the UK just in terms of the rules from the United States or from other countries in Europe, like from France and Spain and Germany? I think is, it's, is there I think any it's, different standard? I, be, I believe it's a little bit easier in terms of, uh, the testing requirements once you get there, right? So when I fly home for Christmas, I have to take a test, even though I'm vaccinated, take a test before I fly, and then I have to quarantine for two days over there, and then take another test. I believe if you're traveling into Europe, despite the fact we decided to leave them behind and tell them to fuck off, um, I think you can you don't have to do that second test once you arrive. So I believe if they were sending fighters there, I could be completely wrong on this, so don't crucify me if I am, but I believe yeah. they could send fighters there without having to put them in a hotel room for days. Fair enough. All right, well, let's talk about Misha Tate. Let's get back to the story at hand. So she fell short here in her uh, endeavors. Now, the scores were 149-46 and then 248-47s, if memory serves. I don't have the notes in front of me here for that, but I believe that's correct, which means she won a couple of rounds, right? By two judges thought she won a couple. She at least won one on all the judges' scorecards. How do you assess where she's at? She made a coaching switch. I'm not sure what benefit was conferred from it. I'm not saying there isn't one, but it's just hard to detect what it was. And she is, I think, what, 34 now or so. I'll double-check that as well. Like In terms of getting back to the title inside that top five space, obviously this was a setback. I guess my question for you is how much of one? Uh, I think the shallowness of that division will always keep her near the top. Just be her and Holly Holm, are, I feel, I always feel they're never more than two wins away from a title shot, really, just because of the name value they've got over the years. So it probably isn't the biggest setback. You know, we, we were just talking about risk versus reward. It would have been a bigger setback for Vieira if she'd lost, right, than it has been for Tate. In terms of the performance, Misha Tate showed she was tough, durable, and never willing to quit in a fight. But we kind of knew that already, right? Everyone points to her Holly Home win as like her defining moment. And so we knew that about her anyway. So I don't really feel like we saw much other than, you know, this sport evolves very, very quickly, even to this day. And athletes taking a prolonged, like years long absence, is very, very hard to overcome the differences that have happened in that sport since you've been away. And she, and, and I really like Misha, so I don't mean this disrespectfully, but she comes from a time where she was at the top as a division was sort of forming, right? The skill sets back then, much is made of Ronda's like, ability to have one sort of real ability to win fights. The skill sets back then amongst that division were a little bit more limited and a little bit more specialist. And she was always in that sort of vein. I wonder now if the sport has got to a point where she'll ever really be able to sort of evolve and adapt and get new skills that are required to get her the wins that she'll need. See, here's where I'm at on this one, man, and I think it's like good news and it's bad news, right? Here's the good news. 
If you go back and you watch, I'm glad you referenced it. I would also argue, even though she lost this fight, Misha Tate versus that version of Kat Zingano, that was a hell of a scrap. And Kat yeah. Zingano put a beating on her, and Tate never, I mean, she lost, but she never backed down. Like, she was in that one to win it. But you're right about the about the Holly Holm performance. She was at you know the end of her punches for four and a half rounds just until she wasn't. And the reason why she got the win, if you go back and you look at it, she was able to duck under, I think it was the cross of Holly Holm. So it would have been the right hand. She had to wait until the the backhanded punch was moving forward at her for her to get underneath. And that's why it took her so long to win because you had a very judicious Holly Holm who knew how to has great lateral movement, is kind of on her feet all the time. Obviously, she was taken down previously in that contest. But, you know, she was keeping Misha at the end of her punches. Misha had to wait for a, just the, the narrowest of windows to find something, and she did. Credit to her because she was a championship-level fighter at that time. Here, what I noticed was she found a lot more opportunities to strike. She wasn't, and, that was, and obviously she was looking for the takedown there. But what I mean to say was she had a lot more clever entries, a lot more understanding of position. There were a couple of feints later on in the fight that were doing some good work, not so much early on. So what I'm trying to say is, like, clearly, even with that time off, if you want to reflect on what kind of fighter she was as a striker in the Holly Holm fight versus the Ketlin Vieira fight. She's much better. She's much better than she was. There's no denying that. But let me correct the record here. Number one, she's 35, not 34. 35 is not young. I grant with her name in the division, there's still obviously a lot for her to do there. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, Oscar, I can grant that she got better as a striker since that time. How much is certainly debatable. wasn't enough on Saturday. But she got better. The problem is... The division also got better, and it looks like it has either maintained or kept the striking lead on her the entire time. Yeah, it's a tough one as well, right? Because what we're talking about here is, can Misha get a title shot? I'm sure Misha doesn't want a title shot. She wants a title. But the problem is, as with the 125-pound division, the champion is so dominant. So you could argue that, okay, her striking has evolved, which I grant you, I think it has too. But... Even if her striking was still sort of acceptable amongst her peers, Amanda's striking is just so far advanced that you can think like, well, is the victory her getting a title shot? Because surely she wants the championship, right? She wants a chance at redemption. She wants to get that back. But I, I think both you and I are talking as if like the title shot is the goal because we both know realistically that fight is likely going to go one way. But then, then it becomes a sort of thing like, well, if the title shot's the goal, and not the championship itself. Why even come back out of retirement? I understand she's obviously enjoying it. She wants to sort of, you know, have an experience without her, her previous relationship and stuff. But it, we're sort of almost limiting her goals already based on what we saw of, of her skills on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. She, I think she did get the one takedown, but she couldn't do a whole lot with it. So I was, I was glad to see she chased it down. I mean, I said this on my post-fight reaction immediately. It's like, did you see, I, in either case, in either case, did you see a fighter who was going to beat Amanda Nunes? And that's not exactly fair because, you know, Ketlin Vieira was fighting in a way I don't think she would ever fight Amanda Nunes. I think she would either yeah. try to get the takedown or probably just get knocked out along the way versus this one she was happy to work behind her striking. Uh, but that's sort of what I mean when you were talking about the, the, the stakes earlier. It's like, dude, like, no matter who won here, you were never going to be like, there's the per There's no Hamzat Shemaev at women's bantamweight. You know what I mean? There's no right. boogeyman yeah. there storming through the ranks along the way. So... I guess we'll see. Last thing I'll ask you about this was the coaching change. Again, it's, I think, our first time with this new coach for the fight. So any kind of improvement might take some time. What'd you make of it? I didn't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't see like an obvious upgrade, but maybe that takes time. 
Yeah, I didn't see an obvious upgrade. I was a little bit surprised, right? Um, because so usually she was with Eric Nixick, right, from Extreme Couture. And I would argue he's one of the best coaches in the game right now. Obviously, I don't know their personal situation. Maybe they had a falling out. I don't know. But I, I was surprised to see that change. I didn't see, not to sort of limit the answer, but I didn't really see any evidence of pro or negative. You know, he seemed to give solid corner advice, but nothing that I thought was ever missing from her before. Um, curious change, probably one that she wanted to make personally. Um, but yeah, I, did, I didn't see any benefits, but I didn't really see any takeaways either. All right, let's move to topic number four, if we can. Let's talk about the co-made event. Sean Brady gets a win over Michael Chiesa. He gets it via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. But it got dicey along the way. He had two eye pokes he had to suffer from. Sean Brady did in the first round. Then he got his nose clipped. It looked like it broken along the way. But he still was able to get back control in two of the three rounds. Here is my question for you. We'll talk about Michael Chiesa in just a second. But first, Sean Brady. This was his big sort of debut, right? Not his UFC debut, but here he was fighting a name, top-ranked opponent. By the way, I think if I remember this correctly, Chiesa was ranked somewhere like fifth or sixth in the division. Brady ranked 14th. Talk about a huge leap he might make. Tell me about the good and the bad you saw from Sean Brady. Uh, so I, I thought it was, there are certain guys who, if you fight, Chiesa is one of them. I think Neil Magny is probably one of them, where even if you win, it doesn't mean you're going to look very good while doing it. Just their styles tend to lead towards grueling fights that you need to really grit through and get a decision. Now, for a younger guy like Sean Brady, and you mentioned it was sixteen to uh, 14 to 6, I believe, the jump. Uh, that's that's He mentioned post-fight, he felt the nerves. He admitted that the media attention on this fight was much more. He noted he, he was looking into the rankings and thinking, man, this is a big jump, you know, sort of having that imposter syndrome. Um, so from that, just getting the win in any shape or form is very good and something that he should feel very happy with. The bad, there was some talk before this fight of, oh, why is this the co-main event, not the main event? I would argue if that was a five-round fight, we'd be talking about a different winner. The fight, it, even towards the end, I felt Chiesa was coming on stronger and Sean was starting to tire. You know, listen, he's, he's young, he's learning. But I felt I felt the fight was, it was in the balance at the very least, right? So very important victory for him. One, I think he'll take a lot of lessons from and learn from. And a win over Chiesa is a very, very big deal to a guy at this stage of his career. I'm curious, however, if they then whip him up the rankings, he's going to be fighting very tough guys in that division whose styles might not help him out as much in terms of how he can match up against them. I, I'm reminded of, uh, and perhaps not to the same degree, right, but I'm reminded of when Darren Till fought at welterweight, right? They threw him up the rankings to a point where he probably wasn't ready to fight those guys at the time he was fighting them. Still needs to improve. I wonder if they might sort of match Brady up with someone who won't, get him the win you know we'll be a step too far too soon yeah i'm worried about that as well so for me here was the good i i, I was shocked at how well he could handle himself yeah. on the floor with michael Chiesa. like i knew he was good don't get me wrong i thought here was what i thought ahead of time i thought i was so fucking wrong about this like i knew brady could win i've been high on sean brady for a long time but I thought what would happen was it would be a really close battle on the ground and like you know whoever just kind of edged it late would get it that was wrong because Sean Brady was like way better on the ground than Michael Chiesa, which was shocking to me because Chiesa was bigger. He's fucking huge. Dude, how he ever made 155 is I, I do not know, right? So that was shocking. Here was the other part that was shocking. They were Southpaw versus Orthodox, and like Bud Crawford against Sean Porter, obviously at a lower level, you had Michael Chiesa shutting down the jab. 
from his right-handed stance just constantly hand-fighting the front lead hand of Sean Brady. Sean Brady couldn't get his striking going, and as a consequence, it was actually Michael Chiesa, who even against Neil Magny had very, like, what do you want to say, just the right kind of striking to facilitate wrestling and not get knocked out, right? But against Sean Brady, he kind of opened up, and he was landing on him. I couldn't believe it. So the bad for me was Sean Brady against, um, like, Court McGee, you go back and watch, towards the end of that fight, he had a little bit of an issue too. So like, there's one issue where Brady has kind of faded in third rounds a little bit, something to watch for. The other part was, I do think he's a good striker and overall maybe maybe a better one than Kiesa. But the way that Kiesa matched him up and shut down that jab, dude, like on the one hand, Kiesa lost this fight. That's two in a row. On the other hand, his striking appears to be way better than I thought it was. So that's how I size these two up. What about Michael Kiesa for you, good and bad? Yeah, and, and you actually hit the nail on the head. This is going to be a loss that I don't think Kiesa should be too disheartened by. You know, he, he Kiesa's for me, has always been kind of a, a bit of a one-dimensional fighter. You, you hit the nail on the head. Striking, good enough to facilitate the grinding sort of wrestling abilities. This fight, I thought he looked great. He looked aggressive. He looked like he wanted to finish very, very strong with the striking. That's not something you usually see out of him. I think... Anytime you can see an evolution of a fighter, it's a positive, even if they lost. I think he should... She, Sean Brady might be very, very good, you know? I do think he's got some things to work work on, but he looks like a real prospect. So, you know, maybe in a few years' time, of course Kiesa lost to him. Why wouldn't he? Sean Brady's a motherfucker, you know? Um, but I don't think Kiesa should be too disheartened, even if it is two in a row, you know? I think he'll drop down the rankings. He'll probably have to fight his way back up. But I see tev- uh, technical abilities in him now on his feet where I think that's that's for someone who's never shown anything like that to be able to parry a jab to be able to work on the feet and feel confident in like he seemed comfortable on the feet right that's something I don't think I've ever really seen from him where he's just like yeah we'll stand and bang I felt like he seemed com- comfortable on the feet that's good for him so I think he should a loss but positives in it no doubt about it and to your point like it's they were, I think you were there for the post-fight presser. They were asking Sean Brady who he might want next, and he was like, oh, the winner of Wonderboy versus Bilal. Man, talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire. Again, maybe he wins those fights. I don't, I don't, I'm not here to say that he can or that he won't. Jesus Christ, dude, that's, <laughs> that is, that's, a, that's a tall order for Sean Brady, is it not? Yeah, well, that's one of the things, right, where at Bantamweight, for example, uh, I would argue that anyone in the top 25 against anyone else in the top 25 – to certain degrees, but basically any matchup are crazy matchups. That division is so deep. So even if you're fighting your way up the rankings, you're fighting against very good guys. So you're learning on the job a little bit quicker. Welterweight is a bit more top heavy, right? So he's just got to win over a very, very good guy. And now the only, like, you know, I don't know anyone who wants to fight Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. You know, his style is so awkward and stuff like that. And I think maybe Brady thinks there's a wrestling advantage there, which of course there is, but yeah. Like you said, frying pan into the fire, I think. They've got to be very careful with him because he's a great prospect. And I, I, I don't, like, I saw people calling, like, DC was desperate for him to call out a name. Like, he was going to call out Hamza. I don't think we should do that fight for a while. You know, let's let's leave mm-hmm. that alone. So I think he just, just be careful. Learn lessons that others haven't and manage the career to a little bit better. Just take, do the Tom Aspinall route. Take your time, work your way up, find your skills as you progress. Yeah, I like the Aspinall comparison. If I'm Sean Brady, I'm taking some fights against guys ranked 8, 9, and 10, not, you know, 5, 6, and 7, because as good as he was, uh, you know, if a guy like Michael Chiesa, who hasn't shown a ton of ability, I granted, I give it to him here, he did, but previously had not. If he's shutting down your jab and getting the best of you, and in the Court McGee fight and in this fight, 
third round was a little bit uh, again, first two rounds he looked phenomenal, but in the third round of both of those fights, he had some, I don't know if they were gas tank issues or what, but th they, they were not strong rounds for him, and that is going to be something as you enter the top five, top six, seven space, you know, you, they're, they're going to be absolutely unforgiving at that level. There's going to be no mulligan there, so we'll have to see how it goes. All right, last topic, but certainly not least, Oscar, you were there in attendance. Who stood out to you in the weekend of MMA action who we have not yet discussed uh yeah i know you wanted to talk about him but i did want to give him a shout out adrian yanis and the, the the dave grant fight i was the fight of the night right i mean they didn't have a lot of competition but i did think it was it was pretty good you know i thought that uh again man that division's just great but the other one i wanted to talk about was talia santos against jojo wood not called wood anymore joanne wood um you know things seem to have just not been clicking for jojo for a while so in that respect you know I really like her, so I don't want to like shit on her. But I think when she loses, I'm not like I can't believe she just lost. You know, she she can she can find a way to lose sometimes. But for Santa, I mean, what a performance! Right, she came out did what on a card where there's like zero finishes to just get a finish means you stand out, right? So just to stand out, that's the thing that matters to me. You know, to, and uh, so it, it's it's tough, right? Because I wouldn't say the card was something that we're going to go and tell our grandchildren about, other than maybe to say, "Don't ever watch that one, or I'll hit you." But um, you know, I think it was something that we can. That one to me was the one that sort of stood out most. Yeah, Tyler Santos is a fucking hammer. She's a hammer. Yeah. She looks like yeah. she's in great shape. Number one. And then number two, she kept finding a home for that right hand through the course of that fight. She was going high. She was going low. And then once she had wood rocked it was you could see her she was on her like white on rice the devastating finish and then uh, interestingly started to choke over the jaw and then cinched it under the neck at the final uh pull of it she definitely looked like a contender to, to pay attention to with calderwood I, I don't know what to say exactly i don't know where she is at in her career obviously she just got married and changed her name and everything so that's great from the personal side of things john what a great coach over at syndicate but um it I don't know if that title shot's ever going to happen for her. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like there's certain people on the roster who they want to give a title shot to. It, I, for whatever reason, they have it in their head, they want to give a title shot to. I feel like she's one of those girls where she's got a bit of a name, she's got a bit of a fan following. So why not let's get her in a title shot against a dominant champion? We don't have anyone else. And I feel like they've always sort of been waiting to give her that opportunity. And for whatever reason, usually because she, she kind of loses that last fight, it's never really happened for her. And at this point, you kind of wonder, you know, you just got beat by another contender. Pretty, pretty one-sided affair. And in fact, if we look at this fight and how Santos performed versus the main event, I think we see the difference between like, okay, you're now a title contender we can discuss and who we can't discuss, right? Um, but yeah, as far as her career, personally, she seems to be thriving. She seems to be loving life. Uh, something's missing on the fight side. I don't think she needs to change coaches. I think Syndicate's a great team. I think her coach is great. But... Um, yeah, man, maybe she just found her ceiling. Maybe she found her level, you know? It's certainly possible. Women's flyweight, finally, I, I don't know if Santos is the person to beat Valentina Shevchenko, but she at least looks like an interesting, in-shape, sturdy contender. We'll see what she can do to rise up the ranks. I'm going to go, by the way, shouts to Hani Yaya. I, I, I tweeted this on Saturday night. Yes. You know, everyone's like, jiu-jitsu ain't, ain't shit in MMA. And I'm like, okay, well, its influence has been, has certainly waned relative to how it started. But dude, you get guys like Hani Yaya and Demi and Maya who for basically almost decades, you know, like Hani Yaya made his W, not his MMA, his WEC debut 
in 2007, so he, in the aughts he was fighting, in the 2010s he was fighting, here we are in the 2020s, this motherfucker is still fighting and beating UFC-level fighters. Now, he's not close to a title shot or anything like that, and he's never gonna be, but dude, for all the talk about, oh, jiu-jitsu ain't shit in MMA, fucking Yaya, who granted is special, Maya, very special, both those guys are very special, they're still competing and winning on more or less jiu-jitsu alone. So for them, maybe jiu-jitsu is pretty important. Yeah, I think also, you know, you mentioned he's not close to a title shot, but that doesn't... A title shot is not a bust or, like, you either get it or it's a bust for a career. So I think to even fight for that period of time in a sport that is relentless about giving people losses, to even be still around, still be fighting UFC caliber fighters and still winning fights, that is a great career in fighting. That is a living you've made off fighting. Not everyone gets to go out there and be... Jose Aldo or some legend or Habib or Connor or anyone, you know, some people are just the middle of the road guys who win and lose. But to do that for a consistent period of time like he has, that's something to be proud of. No doubt about it. And also, we'll talk about Adrian Yanez and Pat Sabatini on the extra podcast that I do, Morning Combat Extra Credit. All right. That is our top five topics. It is now time, Oscar, for us to hear what the fans have to say. It is time for DMs from Donks. Let me pull up my Donks here. Did they send them to me? Hee-haw, as Brian would say. <laughs> Hee-haw, sorry, uh, I'll Yeah, here we go. I think they sent them to me somewhere. Just throw them up on the screen. I'll read that shit. I don't need to see it. Here, throw it up on the screen. Donks. All right, from The Real K. Carter. Is Terrence Crawford the most poorly managed slash promoted boxer of the last 25 years. Let me answer this one if I may first, Oscar. Normally I pitch to you, but I want to take this one. I actually don't think he is poorly promoted. Managed, maybe. But there is some blame on him to go around on this one. So here's what I mean. Dude, top rank did not do a great job of ultimately finding the highest level opponents he could face in the most meaningful bouts. Like, you would agree, Amir Khan, at one time, quite a big name. Amir Khan sucked in that fight. He got hit once kind of <laughs> low, and then just, he just quit. He just quit. And I like Amir Khan, I do, but that was a terrible showing by him. You know, that's not going to do much for Bud Crawford. But, dude, top-ranking ESPN, they made him look pretty good in terms of promoting fights given what they had available to them. I do think that is true. Also, you could argue, why did Crawford... Two, three years ago, three, four years ago, maybe actually, somewhere around the three year mark, he signed with top rank back then. So he was already in his 30s. He could have gone to PBC, which even then we knew had the best welterweights, and he decided to go with top rank instead. So, like, he has some, some, some blame to go around. I don't think he was poorly promoted, maybe poorly managed, Oscar, but that's not, that's not entirely someone else's fault. Yeah, I think a lot of you hit the nail on the head for me. I think. A lot of people are going to look at how it ended and sort of think that was consistent throughout the whole relationship. But you're right, Top Rank tried. I think Crawford actually has to be acknowledged as he's not exactly like, I don't, he's not uh, not interested in media. He seems to actively hate it. Well, in a sport where you kind of have to do a bit of self-promotion as well, that's hard to work with. I'm sure it's really difficult for them when he doesn't want to do stuff and he just you know, kind of feels like I'm the best so I should just be considered the best. I'm sure it wasn't, wasn't easy for them too. So I think there's some blame to go around. And as far as like, is he the worst in 25 years? Uh, I mean, I, the names don't come to mind, but you could pick any boxer and usually they've been treated like shit somewhere. So <laughs> he might not be the worst one, but there are probably others. But I think I, w I would agree with you. That, that's, not a, that's not a blameless scenario he's put himself in. 
No, certainly not. Uh, you could also argue, you know, to what extent is Demetrius Andrade, who won over the weekend, is yeah. he poorly promoted slash managed and whatever else, but... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Dude, in boxing, there's a lot of hands in the pot. If something went wrong, it's usually the fault of a few different entities. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Uh, well, all right, it's, it's next. Also, it's, sorry, just to compare... You know, then you look at like someone like Amir Khan who had no business being in those fights on ability, yeah. but he's been able to manufacture and promote his way into them. That came from himself. You know, I don't really think he had this massive team behind him as much as he just was like, I want to, I want a medal. That's pretty cool. Like that's basically all he dined out on for years. Right, right. That's a good point. All right, Khalid uh, from Khalid Badoon, whose name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Man, this is a tough one. Analyze and pick Terrence Crawford versus Floyd Mayweather, but from their primes at 147. So you've got an offensive genius versus a defensive genius in their primes at 147. I don't even know where to start with this one. You want to take a crack at it? I I, I mean, I, I will take a crack at it. I think Crawford is very, very good. I think he's going to be considered generational talent. I think people forget, you know, Floyd... I, I was always curious about Floyd's legacy once he retired because I wondered if maybe absence would make the heart grow fonder. And then he just never went away. He liked to stick around and, and fight Logan Paul and stuff. So maybe that's why no one's really sort of elevated him to this, you know, absolute legend like, May, uh, like Muhammad Ali or someone like that, you know. Because on ability-wise, I think Floyd's one of the best of all time in any way ever. I think he's just fantastic. Um, he's not a very likable guy. So maybe that's part of it. But I think there's some recency bias here. I think I think Mayweather, to this day, I mean, is the most defensively sandboxer. Best defensively sandboxer I've ever seen or, or, or know of. And I, I think he would still win that fight. I think people are kind of forgetting just how good he was in his career. And I think a lot of that is based on recency bias and based on the fact that he's a bit of a twat. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think this through. Like, you know... Guys who gave him trouble um, with speed elements, which to an extent Crawford has, right? Because he came up from lightweight even um, before even getting to welterweight. So he could match him in speed. Uh, or Actually, I don't know about that. He would be formidable with speed. Like, would he be Zab Judah level? I don't know about that, but he would be formidable. Dude, that's a tough... I don't know. That's a really tough call. Because Crawford... Crawford has so many different tools in the tool uh, set or chest or whatever metaphor you want to pick that he can go to that it's really hard to know like what would Floyd show him constantly that he couldn't overcome. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. It's a, it's a great it's a phenomenal question. 
And you're right, dude. People, people, people sleep on Floyd a little bit because they don't either don't like him or the shit he did or you know whatever this fight and that fight they paid for pay per view and it wasn't super action packed or you know whatever the the issue may be. Um, but dude, in his prime, he was fucking good. He was really, yeah. I, really I, good. I, I think it's one of those ones as well. With Floyd's a funny one because yeah, I, I remember during his sort of peak, you know, you tune in, the fight would be what it was because Floyd kind of just defensively did enough where he was never in trouble and he would do the sport of boxing right hit not get hit didn't give a shit if the fans left pissed off probably preferred it in fact um but he also had this sort of unique ability to basically show like you just sort of mentioned there he showed the opponents just what they needed for him to win right against canelo he completely defensively shut him out just counted and, and just sort of let this young guy burn himself out and just was a master class I don't know what he shows Crawford, but if I could pick anyone to say that he'll have something in his locker that would suit that fight to get him the win, Mayweather's that guy who can produce it. The one thing I'll say is Crawford gets hit a bit. People were saying, I, I argued on Saturday night, he doesn't get hit clean very often, which I do maintain is true, but people do make contact with him a fair bit. Um, yeah. Floyd, Floyd could give him trouble there because he could defensively roll, change up the looks, and then tag him enough to win rounds. But, dude, like any fight between them, you know is going the distance, and you know it's going to be close. It's going to be really close. Um, I mean, the real, the real answer is they would never have fought in their prime because they right. wouldn't have done it. <laughs> so there you go. I, thought, I think in his prime, Floyd took some decent chances and some risks, but I do think late prime, post prime, you know, he was definitely handpicking. Um, all right, from Dute N. Strong, wherever the fuck that is. Who wins in a grappling match between Gordon Ryan and Habib? Submission only. Let me think. Uh, man, it's a tough one, right? Because it's sort of it, it's there's MMA grappling and then there's grappling, grappling, right? Um, this might maybe this is a controversial take. You're more you're more sort of up to speed and, and smarter than me about the grappling side of things. But for me, it's just very hard to imagine. Khabib looks monstrously strong. Right? There's just something about him, even for his weight at 155, although he really fought at that, you know, even for his weight, he he looks like the sort of guy who's so dense and strong, he could outmuscle like a middleweight or a light heavyweight even, you know, he looks crazy strong. And it's hard for me, I remember when Tony Khabib was a, a factor, people thought that Tony's active guard would somehow get Habib in trouble. I don't know if Habib has ever given anyone enough breathing space to let those sort of attacks happen. So for me... I don't know how it goes, but I, I find it hard to imagine Habib on top being able to be manipulated when he's so strong and so adept at just holding people in place. See, I have a, I have a different read on this. I mean, again, they, the, the good news is any type of rule set is going to change the equation to a degree, right? So if they had MMA rules and they were grappling on the mat, if there was submission only, which he articulates here, or points or you know whatever, the rule set is going to dictate who is going to have a little bit more luck than the other in certain cases. But in this particular case, and even maybe without it, I'm going to pick Gordon Ryan to win, and I'm going to pick him quite, quite handily. I, 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 I'll say this for Habib. I watched his, in, his tutorial that he put out on BJJ Fanatics, which, of course, is a merely a tiny little window into his overall ability. And it was interesting, but a lot of what he does is incredible, but a lot of what he does is also a function of feel from day one. Here's what I mean. He likes to wrestle with his legs against someone else's legs. We've all seen him like kind of sit in a mount where his opponent's back is along the fence and their legs are stretched out in front of him. And Habib is on top. He did it to Connor, right? Where he would kind of lace the legs together. 
one of the things he talks about is he has a few guides to how to control that position. But what he basically also says is, I've been sitting in this position for two decades, basically. I've been doing this for forever. I've got a certain kind of muscular feel of this position that I've just mastered over time that he basically says, like, you're not going to get there unless you just spend time working in this position. That's not, that's dominant, especially for MMA when you're like, you know, the threat of getting punched is so, like, immediate that you have to use your hands to react to it. In a submission-only grappling match, you know, you're asking me, A, Gordon Ryan is significantly bigger. He's going to be well into the 200s, number one. And number two, dude, like, dude, Gordon Ryan is telling the world in our hour, hours long. He did, I think, eight hours just on half-guard entries into, like, sweeps or something. And he is putting the blueprint out for his game. He put out just an instructional video on all of his ADCC matches from the last ADCC and how he went through and beat all of them. uh, Danaher is also putting out all this new wave stuff. These guys are literally releasing the blueprint to their contemporaries, and they still can't do shit to them. It's kind of unbelievable to watch. Like There was a recent video on um, Bernardo Faria's channel on Gordon Ryan, how to get out of the body triangle. Dude, the level of technical ability (laughs) and understanding that he shows is far beyond what I've ever seen, at least in Nogi, from anybody else. It's not even even close. And I know Gordon Ryan has a lot of views that a lot of people don't like, and that's fine, but that has nothing to do with what the question is here operatively assessing just how good Gordon Ryan is. So I'm going to say, between the size factor, which I think even you would agree would be a big thing for Habib to overcome, um, or at least an you know, important factor anyway. And then I think the level of technical specificity that he employs relative to like the muscular kind of position hold that Habib employs, I think Gordon Ryan would, I think he would crush him, actually. I think it comes down to what you said as well. It's a rule set, right? And this one was defined for us. But once you start adding punches and things, things can change. But I, I, would, I would grant you, I'll, I'll, I will stand myself convinced and say in a submission only thing, you're probably right. All right, let's move on. It'd be fun to watch. Let's go to it's not cage fighting. They ask, and this is a better question for you because your job requires that you be there for these shits. I can just punt if I want to, but okay. At it's not cage fighting, are weak fight nights similar to Vieira versus Tate running the risk of diluting the UFC product? Running the risk? They've been doing that forever. What's up? What do you think? Uh, I'll tell you, when you're sitting in there, it feels like it's fucking diluted. Um... Well, it goes two ways, right? I think I would argue that the reason the pay-per-views currently feel so special are because they're the only one with fans, right? So they feel different. And some of that difference comes from not seeing it regularly. When they do fights every Saturday, yeah, man. Like, it, it, I'll say this. From a person who covers these fights, and uh, maybe this is condemnation of myself, Sometimes, like, people will get on the scale and I'll be like, wait, who's this fucking guy again? Like, if it's an early prelims and stuff, like, there's just so much of it, so often, so frequent. It can almost be hard to cover um, sometimes. So with that said, I would say, yes, their product has been diluted. The flip side of that is, I think they quite like their product being diluted. The more of it, the more consistent, the stronger the brand becomes over the individual fighters. I don't know who I'm watching on Saturday. I'm watching the UFC, though. That sort of thing, right? So I mm. think I would argue their product has been diluted, but I think it's almost they would rather it get to the point where it's basically every weekend just so they have consistent momentum that, listen, like it or not, Dana managed to get going during the pandemic, and I would suspect 
the relationship with ESPN is incredibly strong because of that. And I think they're just constant, like, here's content, here's content, here's content. It's not great for building a wow factor, a special factor, like heavyweight boxing fights feel big because they never happen between the guys we want to see them against. UFC's on every Saturday. I do think it dilutes the product, but I think that's a, a situation they're almost happy with. It's a weird situation. I think the building of the Apex has been way more impactful than we've ever oh, yeah. really discussed, right? So for one, it was a bit of the Alamo situation in Las Vegas during the pandemic. It's weird now, right? Because during the pandemic, they had... The pandemic's not over, but you know what I mean. Like, when it, when it was quarantines and shit like that here in the United States. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, right? Because now you watch sports and everyone's back in full or semi-full arenas everywhere. UFC still at the Apex or Fight Island. And as you mentioned, you have the occasional pay-per-view that they venture out to. But they haven't done that a whole lot. Um, and also, what's kind of interesting is you combine the fact that they have this facility where they control all the production... They can they can pump out a fight card every nearly every weekend. One, it always puts the competitor on the media back foot because even if the whole card is weak, they can usually at least still preserve an A level or semi A level name for the main event, and that by itself kind of hurts Bellator or whoever else is trying to put out content. And also, you're right; like they'll they'll have these weak ass cards, but then the pay per views are these fucking extreme, you know. 267 and 268 on back-to-back -back weeks. I mean, answer the question, dude. Name another promoter who could even do that. There isn't even another promoter in the space that could match that on their best day, and they know it. So why the fuck do they care, especially when they've been a huge leader for ESPN Plus? They're constantly putting content on there for them. It's always fresh. You're always if you if you missed it, you have to go back and check in the ESPN Plus app or whatever. It's a it's in every way the Apex has been a giant win for them other than don't you find it weird that they're dude the UFC used to be like the road machine like yeah. that was what they did now they're the home team it's a bit of a switch well I think there's a, a, another factor about the Apex right is they don't have to sell tickets there so if they're getting paid by ESPN to provide them content they can headline with a Jessica I Cynthia Calvillo because they don't need to rely on the gate and ticket sales that they would have to get, you have to put on a strong main event if you go to like fucking bumfuck wherever. You have to put on something that's going to get people through the door. So I think they've probably realized like, well, for some cards, it's better for us to save our travel costs. And you know, it's a massive machine moving in anywhere, right? It's huge. It's a lot of expense in there. And I wonder if maybe they've worked out sort of an algorithm where they think this card, we can expect to make this much revenue from traveling versus if we keep it here, we get to do it like this. You know, I think the apex, you're right. And talk about the timing on that, man. Like, the, the, you know, they build a building they could put fights on and then they shut, the world shut down. So that was the only place they could do it. I mean, tremendous by luck or whatever, like working the way that worked out for them. Yeah, I, I think the apex, it's curious, right? Because Dane has always wanted to get back on the road. And now you can tell he clearly doesn't. Whether that's just because he can just drive down the street to work or not, I'm not sure. But I wonder if they've reached a point now where it's sort of, um, we don't need to travel, we can stay here. Dude, I mean, ESPN, the, the two of the most insignificant changes for UFC, it appears to me, or the pandemic forced some of this, right? But uh, the Apex building and the ESPN deal, and this is overly simplifying the matters, I'm just identifying two things among other factors. Um, I also think that, other promoters aren't as powerful in the space as they used to be. Like Bellator is not as powerful as Strike Force, so you have greater control of the market. 
you are aligned with the, if not the one, no, the top brand in, in all of sports, basically like, you know, you know, covering tennis, covering soccer, covering everything. And then, uh, on top of it, you have this facility where you can, and this deal, obviously, with ESPN, with the, this facility where you have all this ability where you don't have to go on the road. You can still go on the road for big pay-per-views, but even then, you don't necessarily have to. You're cash flush because of this ESPN deal. It's been a reward for them because you already had a digitally native audience. Dude, like, they don't need to do hardly any of the same shit they ever did because the ESPN deal has elevated their brand. I mean, I, for folks who are watching MMA now who maybe didn't watch a few years ago, it was not like this with Fox Sports, and I can assure you it was not like this with Spike TV. They have The brand has never been hotter, and they're doing far less work to get there. Why wouldn't they just stick around? Yeah, I also think there's a... There's a an, this is going to be an oversimplification, but to me, mixed martial arts is pre-ESPN deal and post-ESPN deal. To me, the sport feels so different since they got that deal. That it's, it's, I don't know if you feel the same. Certainly working as a leech on this beautiful sport of ours, I felt my numbers go up since that deal. It's just more available to more people. And, as, and I think another sort of very important factor is their ability to go through the pandemic when very few others were and their ability to go through the pandemic. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were betting on marble racing. That's how much people were starved for content. The, the fact that the UFC managed to get going during that, get consistent, I think that combined with the way ESPN has pushed them means the sport is almost unrecognizably more popular than it was perhaps even five, seven years ago, you know? Hmm. Yeah, there's no... Dude, 20... So let's say seven years ago. So 2014. 2014 was when the UFC was doing, and I'm not making this up, they were doing shows in Brazil in a place called Uberlandia. Uberlandia is how it's kind of spelled if you say it in English. You know, they're never fucking going back there. Like, that was at the time. You know what I mean? Like they were trying to stoke that Brazilian market. They were constantly on the road and blah, blah, blah. That, that shit is fucking over these days. So it's an interesting time. Uh, all right. Last but not least here from Timmy Tux. This is a question to me, but I'll, I'll, I'll reframe it for you in here in a way. Luke, you have mentioned watching fights on mute, yes. But have you ever tried watching them in Spanish? Last night was my first time, and I felt I was more able to focus on the action while also experiencing the sound uh, effects and some commentary. So I've talked to Danny Segura about this. He listens to the Spanish commentary pretty consistently, and he loves it. He actually feels like he gets a lot out of it that way. My Spanish is okay, but it, I would be concentrating so much on what they're saying to understand it that I... Probably wouldn't be able to like dig into the fight. Here's the, the basic argument I've made, though, about the commentary. Let's talk about Daniel Cormier here for a second here, Oscar, if we can. This is my problem with the commentary. People misunderstand my argument a little bit. This is not me bashing commentary to say I could do a better job. In fact, quite the opposite. I don't know of anyone out there who could do, at least event to event, a better job than who they've got. They've got Daniel freaking Cormier. They've got Michael Bisping. They've got Paul Felder. These fuckers know what they're doing. I think they're a little bit hamstrung with the UFC not wanting them to criticize certain things, but in terms of like their knowledge of MMA, what, what is anyone else going to say that they don't already know? That's not the issue. The issue for me is, one, they tend to get like, sometimes they start talking like it's a podcast where they're yeah. just kind of having these free-flowing conversations independent of the fight, which is fine, but it can get weird over time. The other problem is it's nothing they can fix. Dude, MMA is so fast and so difficult to uncover 
that during the course of a fight, what these guys say oftentimes bears little resemblance to what actually influenced the result. And people think when I say that, I'm saying I could do better. No, I would do much worse. But what I'm saying is if even the very top guys have difficulty identifying the actual factors that contributed to it, like something you can only get with tape study after the fact, there's a question about how much value you're getting from the commentary overall. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it seems to me more so than it has been in a long while that the, the topic of com the commentary has come up more and more. You know, people seem to be almost every event having an issue. Like Daniel Cormier last Saturday, for example, was criticized heavily for some of his commentary. I like to, uh, for the most part, I like their commentary, but I wonder if related to what we just spoke about, if it's overexposure, right? We have to hear these guys every single week and then slowly over time, they're perhaps less strong abilities of their commentary become more obvious flaws. And because we hear it so often, it's like, oh, he's doing that thing again, like right away. And it become immediately more annoying than perhaps it was a while ago. I will say that Cormier, I, I really like Cormier. So this is not a, necessarily a, a massive criticism of him. I do think that sometimes maybe on an event like last Saturday where some of the fights are a little bit rougher, I can see his interest kind of wane throughout the event. And I think if he has a partner like a Joe Rowe, Joe Rogan was different because he's only pay-per-views, but if he has a partner like Michael Bisping or Paul Felder, it can sort of turn into like, you know, I'm not really watching this. I'm just fucking around with my friend here, which in, in, in spaces, I, I can find that quite fun to listen to. I can find the back and forth entertaining. I think it's quite unique to MMA in a, in a certain respect that we have some guys just screaming and, and sort of broing down with their friends. I think it's just when you have to hear it all the time that it starts to, you know... Daniel Cormier has never been more visible than he is now because of all of his duties, his all of his shows, and because of his regular status as a commentator. And I wonder if maybe it's sort of like Cormier fatigue that's pissing people off rather than mm. like how bad he actually is. If he did one show a month, I wonder if he would get shit on as much as he does. Yeah, Michael Bisping, I don't feel like gets nearly as much no, criticism. Uh, and Paul Felder, I don't think he... Yeah, I, I would say that the guy who tends to get the most criticism... Well, Rogan tends to get the most, but for a lot of other reasons. But um, uh, DC number two, but to your point, DC is more ubiquitous. And also, like, DC, he does actually what a commentator, I think, is supposed to do. Now, you can like it, the version of it that they give, or you can dislike it, but he's trying to give... You know, he's trying to influence the audience in the way in which he sees the sport, like... That's what he was hired to do. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't like his views rather than understanding him, 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 him delivering these views is the objective and they get they confuse one challenge with the other. That's all I'll say yeah, on that. Yeah, I think it's, it's also a weird one, right? I feel with Rogan, a lot of the criticism is he finds a narrative to a fight and then we'll stick to that like, you know, his, the whole time, his, right. his theories and his views on the world, he'll just stick to them and never change. Um, but I think he'll, he'll stay on that. And I think that can be really annoying as a listener. When he was the, the one that comes to mind is Adesanya versus Jan Blakovic. He was ignoring everything that Jan does because he went into the fight thinking Adesanya is this elite level striker. He's amazing. His faint work is so good. That, that was all he was seeing. He wasn't actually seeing how the fight was really going. With Cormier... Well, he does that if Rogan's there, because I get, I get the sense that Cormier wants like Rogan to really like him. And you can actually hear sometimes their dynamic, like Cormier will backtrack on something if Rogan disagrees with him. I think he wants Rogan to like him. But sometimes when DC's not with Rogan, he's saying stuff that, you know, you might disagree with. But at the end of the day, 
I suspect most of the people disagreeing with him aren't former world champions. So you can't, to some degree, you kind of have to trust that the commentator might be seeing something you're not. Also, we have better angles. We're more relaxed. You know, we're not doing a hundred things at once. We don't have someone in our ear. It's not an easy job. You point it to yourself. It's, it's not an easy job. So I think Cormier gets a lot of criticism that I don't think is necessarily always fair. I do think sometimes he can sort of get a bit on the Rogan train. But I think Cormier's. Uh, Almost underappreciated. I think Cormier is pretty, pretty a good. Considering where when he came on and started, he was such a great addition. I just think people have sort of forgotten that actually, you know, that there has been worse. Put it that way. Yeah, my only complaint about Cormier, aside from, you know, do I always agree with his ideas about MMA? No, but he's paid to give them, so that's fine. Uh, the only thing I have an issue with is when you mentioned some of the chumminess. Like there are times when he and Rogan are together, and it's a giggle fest, and it's like, yeah. This is highly distracting. I like Dominic Cruz and Rogan because, because Cruz, is, is he as bubbly and vibrant as DC? No, he's not. But one, I think his analysis is incisive, number one. And number two, because he's kind of like, he's a, he's a bitter old man in a young man's body, kind of, you know? He kind of, uh, he, he, he checks Rogan a lot. Like, he's like, no, that's not true. Like, no, look at this, blah, blah, blah. So he acts as like a countervailing force there. And he doesn't try to play the chum-chum game either. To me, it works out better. Well, we might just be sort of cynics who enjoy that sort of stuff. But sometimes when it's him and Rogan or, or even Cruz and Cormier, it's a bit like being at someone else's dinner party and you realize the hosts have been arguing in the kitchen. You know, you're just sort of like listening. Yeah. Like, oh, I think that there's a bit of tensity there. I, I t- tenseness. I enjoy it. But um, I think if that, I also think if that was regular, like if that was every week, I would sort of get a bit annoyed at just like this uh, sudden frosty comment followed by seconds of dead air. And then someone goes, nice jab. And they sort of try and carry on as if they're not clearly like bickering. Um, so maybe I'd get bored of that too. I just think it's, uh, like, we, like we said, Matt, it's every weekend. It's, it, it's the same sort of stuff every time. No wonder people get bored of it. Uh, all right. With that, we have one last segment to get to. It is odds and ends, Oscar Willis. Give me something that's happening in the fight game or something else we just didn't get to that is worthy of a quick mention. What do you have me for odds and ends? Well, I sort of, uh, I sort of just sort of, sort of really paid attention this morning. But I, I'm, I'm going to point out John Jones. Um, you know, a guy who's who's rarely in the news. You know, he's really usually just completely forgotten about. Mm, uh, John, yeah, he said that it's been sixty days. Um, 60 days sober and then I think our friend Mike Bond said well the incident happened 58 days ago I think Cormier even responded sort of laughing at it and uh, it was the same weekend ironically enough that John Jones announced he was having a grappling match with Bellator heavyweight Jake Hager who then said no we aren't I've not been told about this and then John since deleted that tweet as he likes to do deleted the tweet announcing that grappling thing my, my overall arcing point is that John for someone who would benefit from not being heard about for a while and sort of, you know, I don't know how much fonda is really applicable here, but the old term absence makes the heart go fonda. I mean, for someone who could benefit from that a lot, he really tries his utmost to never let that happen. Um, and, you know, he just has a weird thing with tweets. I mean, a while ago he did the the big tweet storm after after the gym kicked him out and you know he said some very personal things in there that he immediately de- deletes and I, I can't really comment on those until you actually speak to the guy about it but he he it's almost like john jones is just a massive oversharer at all times 
and I don't really know why. I think he yeah, would I don't, just be I don't know why either. He has this desire for us to know what his narrative of events are, which is, you know, you can make of that what you will. I, I, I To me, it's like, let, let me know when the UFC announces something with what he's yeah. doing because anything else he says to me is, I'm not saying it's false. I don't know if it's false, but it's utterly unreliable and doesn't mean much. Um, so but it's, we'll see it's always done to paint him in a better light. You know, right. I, so it's not like it's not 60 days since this pretty obviously horrific incident. It's 60 days since I became a better person. Well, you know, we'll see about that. All right. Yeah. 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 Uh, for me, it was a simple one. I kind of teased it on Friday over the weekend and then it happened. Uh, Hamzat Shemaev had a grappling match with fellow UFC. Well, Hamzat can do middleweight and welterweight, so I'll call him fellow UFC middleweight Jack Hermanson. I believe this was in Sweden, somewhere in Europe, and uh, it was weird. You could see it here. Jemayev comes up on top. They had wrestling shoes, but it was kind of nogi. I had a buddy of mine score it. They Some people said it was a shutout for Jemayev. It wasn't. It was closer to like 8-4, eight, 8 points to 4. But either way, Jemayev won against Hermanson. But here's the bigger takeaway I had from this. Obviously, it's not MMA. You know, Be careful what you're reading to it. But, dude, for a guy who can make welterweight and beat people's ass there, him muscling Jack Hermanson around, who is yeah. a big middleweight and a strong grappler himself, yeah. pretty fucking alarming. <laughs> pretty fucking alarming. <laughs> dude, I think, yeah. I think these, these welterweights, I don't know how far, maybe all the way to the title, I don't know, but I think there's a bunch of welterweights who are in trouble, dude. I think finally we're seeing a bit. And, by the way, I will say this. As the match wore on, Hermanson made a much, much better account of himself. So we'll see if Chimaev, when he gets pushed into the third and fourth round, what he looks like. But for him to be this good, this competitive, pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, and I mean, just what a specimen of it. You know, the guy's fucking huge. And he looks like he looks like he wrestles bears and oxes and shit. Uh, for me, he just... It, you, you mentioned it, and I saw you put it on Twitter as well. If you could survive the onslaught that comes at you from the... They started wrestling before the people had left the cage. That's how right. quick he wants to get into shit. He's like, I, I don't think Hamza Shemaev is happier than when he's attacking someone. I feel like that's his happy place. He has to go out and like beat people's fucking shit in to like get a good kick that day. He, he, his onslaught is so crazy. It's, it's almost, I want to say, unlike anything I've seen for a long, long time in MMA, just the relentlessness, the chain wrestling, just the ability to be on you from the moment it starts. We'll see what happens after that fades. It'll be interesting. I don't really know how many people I could count who I could reliably say I expect them to last it, you know? Well, I'll say this. It actually reminds me a little bit of Connor. People folks will be like, what? Connor? Hear me out for a second. Hear me out for a second. In every, there are m meaningful differences, uh, in, in part because I don't think Connor would start fights shot out of a cannon in the way that Hamzat is. I mean, yeah. what I tweeted was, listen, either you can match this intensity or opponents will try, or you can't and you'll play a rope-a-dope. But like, whoever fights Hamzat Chemaev, you got to figure out what to do with an opponent who is going to start the round at maximum intensity. And he's going to keep it there, by the way, for some time. Maximum yeah. intensity. Connor didn't have maximum intensity, but what I will say is, and I actually have a video on my personal YouTube channel about it. Connor would start the first round, and we're talking about, you know, not the current version, but the one, let's say, who fought Eddie Alvarez, right? Let's be generous about it for a second. He would start that fight with the intensity and focus of, uh, I know you've been in America for a while now, uh, a batter going to the batter's box, bottom of the ninth, 
two outs, bases loaded. You need to be this. This is it. You need to be dialed in. He always had, or even, I think I wrote what he had was he had game seven intensity, right? So uh, uh, you know, your best of seven series. One team wins three, another team wins three. You are now in the seventh game, dude. If you're going to win that game, you know you already can tell both teams are you know roughly evenly matched. It's about who wants it more, dude. He would always fucking start those fights dialed in and as you could tell his opponents were taking some time to kind of get into it which is natural right a lot most fighters do that but there are certain fighters in different ways in different ways and folks be like oh my god he compared Hamzat to Connor what I am saying is there are certain guys Hamzat is insanely intense but there are certain fighters who can start with a higher level of intensity and focus and it causes problems you see it in the fight game to an extent Connor's one of those guys as well I, I, and and probably related and this is a bit more of a hippie way of saying this but there are certain guys who we talk about momentum in fighting a lot but intensity right where you can just sort of feel their presence in the cage certainly when connor was rising up you know he just had this aura about him of like inevitability like he was going to come out and you were going to fight you know he could lose the fight but you knew he was going to start like a presence hamza is exactly the same way i mean him picking up um Li Jing, I'm sorry for butchering his name. Him picking up the last guy in his fight, the walking over Li to Dana. Lang, yeah, yeah Leech. Um, when he walked over to Dana, screaming and shouting while holding a man above, like above his head, probably the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. It was literally just terrifying. You know, the crowd's roaring, and he's going, "Get me Brock Lesnar!" It's like, oh, shit, this guy's a problem. Yeah. Mm, amazing. Well, that is it for us. We normally do have you seen this shit, but that's such a Brian Campbell special that we're going to leave it off for today. Uh, Oscar, tell the good folks how they can find your work, please. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, Oscar S. Willis. I started a weekly show with Dan Hooker called Pub Talk. That's on the Mac Life YouTube. Um, I get drunk and talk about banging little people, usually. Um, so it's good. It's family-friendly. Watch it with the kids. And, yeah, that's basically me. I want to say, Luke, thank you very much for having me on the show, man. I, re- I really appreciate it. Real quickly, before the Dan Hooker thing, how did that come about? Because why? He, is he stuck in the States? Is that it? Well, the bastard actually just got back into New Zealand, so he's killed it before it's even got started. But um, uh. no, we were, in, we were in Abu Dhabi, and uh, I just walked past him in the corridor, and I was just like, Dan, you're in Vegas, right? He said, yes, I'm in Vegas for the foreseeable future. I said, do you want to do a show in a pub every week? And he said, yeah, I've got fuck all else to do. And that was the end of that. And actually, what people don't realize is Dan and I do not talk until he sits down and put the mic on. We don't talk about it before the show. We don't talk about it after the show. He gets up and just walks out the moment it's done. We have no discussion, no prep time or anything. So what you see is essentially us talking. Apart from I email him saying this time, this date, and he says, okay, we have no discussion outside that show. It's pretty weird, but it seems that's, to work. that's interesting. Uh, give, me, give me, before you go, give me... Uh, a story from Fight Island. Doesn't have to be with fighters per se, but like, give oh, me a man. sense of Fight Island, what it was like. Uh, <laughs> there's a few stories that I won't be, I don't want to get a call from the UFC about, so I can't really reveal them. But maybe one time over a beer, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you stuff. It was, uh, it was a little bit like summer camp as kids, you know, where it started off, it was exciting and it was cool. And then, you know, four and five weeks being around the same people, you know, I didn't even like being around my parents for four or five weeks. Being around these people that you're kind of just shoved into a situation and there's no escape. You're in for the lot for the uh, for one of them. We weren't allowed to leave the hotel. We'd have to go out of the hotel onto a bus to the arena, onto the bus back to the hotel. You weren't allowed to be exposed to the outside world. Uh, so when you're around a lot of people for that length of time, it was fucking brutal. Uh, they did, and then for the first few, they had drink specials at the bar where uh, it was either buy one get one free 
or for soccer games, they would have you pay $20 at the beginning of the game and for 90 minutes, you could drink all you want. Well, when you have nothing else to do, that's a very dangerous drink special to give me and John Morgan. And we relentlessly took that drink special to the point where they had to cancel it for the entire Fire Island. They canceled the drink special because of me and John Morgan. Nice. That's what I'm talking about. Dude, if you're not getting thrown out of bars, go fuck yourself. That's my answer. That's how you should (laughs) leave bars. But But tell you what, true story. The last time we left the bar, John and I, the people in there, the the people working stood up and applauded that we were leaving. That's true. That is awesome. Uh, well, I don't know what my next MMA show will be, but I are you going to go to um, – I know you were at the first one. Are you going to go to Jake Paul, Tommy Fury? No, I've, I would like to, but unfortunately I booked my ticket home, and then two hours later they announced it, and then I couldn't oh, – that's like, right. I fucked up, couldn't change the ticket. So instead of being $800 out of pocket, I'm going to give myself one week off for the entire year. So uh, I will not be going, but I would like to have gone. All right, well, I'm, I'm going to be down there in Tampa for you, so I'll send you a note. Okay. Um, if you want, throw the graphic up one more time there, Gaff, if you can, so folks can follow uh, all of his stuff. Obviously, at the Mac Life as well, you can go there on the YouTube channel, and then give Oscar a follow on Instagram or Twitter, and then you can see Morning Combat there as well. Reminder, merch, morningcombat.store, gift cards are available, bestsellers are available, all kinds of stuff's available. Go check that out there. Uh, if you want Showtime, go to Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, go to something else. But remember, Showtime does have a fight this weekend. So if you're like, what am I going to watch on on uh, Thanksgiving weekend? We got you covered over there. Uh, Apple Podcasts, help us scam the algorithm. Leave us a five-star review. We're going to pick out some of the winners and pay you guys for helping us scam. And then don't forget, morningcombat at gmail.com for dead wrongs, which we'll get to. And, of course, fan subs as well. All right. For CBS Sports, for Showtime, for Malka, for the Mac Life's Oscar Willis, I'm Luke Thomas. Brian Campbell's on vacation back on Wednesday. And until then, may all of your gains be loyal.